births are very exciting. Uh, births include all range of emotions and uh, drama, anxiety, pain. There's screaming uh, that is often involved in that action, sometimes even uh, little bits and glimmers of comedy. Most of the time the moms don't uh, see the comedy in that. That's uh, mostly the dads. Uh, but I've learned over the years if you want to get some fun conversations started amongst the ladies, just talk about the birth of kids. And uh, that will get some exciting conversation stimulated amongst them, and it will take care of itself. But today, and really over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about really the most controversial, um, incredible, and what many consider unbelievable uh, birth that has ever taken place in the history of mankind, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament actually gives us a bit of a multi-angled view as we look at the birth of Christ. You have the gospel writer Luke, uh, who includes really a lot of detail that the others don't include. Uh, Luke begins by introducing us to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, and then he begins to describe for us the announcement that's made to Mary, uh, Mary and Elizabeth, and then uh, we even get to go to Bethlehem with them and, uh, and find out that there's no room for them to stay, and they find themselves in a stable. There's shepherds, there's angels. He has all of these extraordinary details for us. Uh, you go to the gospel writer John, and John takes a more theological approach. Uh, John talks about the Word that was in the beginning with God and the Word that, that was God. And we find uh, so much truth in John's first chapter regarding who Jesus really was and that he really was, in fact, divine, God. There's that very uh, famous and probably the most well-known verse from John 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then there's Matthew. And Matthew kind of gets a little overshadowed. Matthew doesn't have the theological glamour as John has, and he doesn't have all the, the details that Luke has. He's kind of like the middle child in the family uh, that tends to get overlooked when we're talking about the Christmas story. He's got a lot of other great things in his gospel, but he doesn't have all of the other stuff. But we're going to give our attention to Matthew. I'm a middle child, so I can, I can relate to Matthew just a little bit. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to look at, at what Matthew has to say in relation to to the birth of Jesus Christ. But over the past year, uh, we have been working towards this particular text. Um, you may not know that, but I've known that. As we started in the book of Joshua, we've been working to Matthew chapter 1 to prepare for the Advent season. You see, in Joshua, he is the presence that is found in the Ark of the Covenant that is leading the people into the promised land. He's the, the captain of the hosts of the Lord's army that shows up and speaks with Joshua directly. In the book of Judges, uh, he is the judge that never shows up. We're anticipating this one who will come, who will get it right. And we, we might be tempted to think for a moment it's going to be Othniel or Shamgar or Gideon or, or maybe even Jephthah or Samson, but they all, they all fail and crumble. As we move into the book of Ruth, and we studied that in August of this year, he is the restorer of life, and he is the nourisher of Ruth's old age. 
spoken of in chapter 4. It's the reason that the author makes the connection at the end of the book of Ruth uh, between Ruth and and David, her great-grandson who would come. In Samuel, uh, he is the priest that Eli could not be, the prophet that Samuel could not be. He is the king that neither Saul nor David could be. But what about David? We kind of left off with him last week. Our own David uh, shared with us from 1 Samuel chapter 16 a little bit about this man after God's own heart who, who was anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16. He was still a young boy at this particular time. And in chapter 16, his story is just getting started. Chapter 17 is one of the most well-known stories in all of biblical history and literature. It's the story of David facing Goliath, trusting in Yahweh. Our own David covered that well last week. Beginning in chapter 18, Saul's jealousy grows toward David because after he killed Goliath, the people begin to say, David kills his ten thousands and Saul kills his thousands. And Saul wasn't the type that liked that. He was very jealous, and he became so jealous of of David's popularity that he began to plot to kill him. And David is on the run from Saul. 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul and Jonathan in a battle with the Philistines. And as we move into the first pages of 2 Samuel, uh, we would read that the, the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, anoints him to be their new king. It would take seven more years before all of Israel would recognize the kingship of David. But what's glorious is in chapter 5, once his kingship is recognized, the first thing David does is he takes the armies into the city of Jerusalem that has been inhabited by the Jebusites for centuries. Israel never had occupied the city of Jerusalem. And David, one of his first acts as king, is to run them out and claim this as the capital. Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to this capital city. And then if we jump forward to chapter 8, we read of the advancement of the kingdom under the rule of David. But chapter 7 contains something of greater riches and greater promise and experience than anything David would ever accomplish in his life. And I want to read that with you this morning. So if you would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to see what happens in this particular chapter. It has great consequence for what we're going to look at in Matthew 1. David is set up home in Jerusalem, and here's what it says. Chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, now, when the king lived in the house of the Lord, had, had given him re- in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now that I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He's speaking of the tabernacle. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people out of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with all the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and they will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, fulfilled David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. What's the next word? Forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. I would encourage you to sometime today read David's response at the end of chapter 7. It's a glorious response of worship for this incredible promise that Yahweh makes to David. Love how he says, David, I brought you out of the pastures. You're just a farm boy and I've made you a prince, but I'm also going to establish your kingdom, and that key word is this, forever. Would David's son Solomon live forever? No. What about Solomon's kids? Absolutely not. This is a promise that's made to David that the Christ, the Messiah, the king of all kings would come from his own body, his own lineage. That's why I say this is the most extraordinary thing that would ever happen in David's life. Taking down a giant, becoming a war hero is extraordinary, but not more extraordinary than a promise that the God of gods would give you that your kingdom will never come to an end. This promise would be reiterated through the coming prophets. I've listed out several other passages for you that you can look at in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah. But the promise ultimately culminates in Matthew chapter number 1. And I'll ask you to turn there with me, and we'll read another portion of Scripture here together. Matthew 1, beginning in verse number 1. 
Before I read, I want to ask the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you for our time already together. It brings joy to my heart, and I know part of it is just nostalgia, tradition, but to sing these Christmas songs, but to take the time during this Advent season to recognize the significance of, of the incarnation, of you coming to dwell amongst us, of you coming to do what Adam and Eve and we could not do. And Lord, we rejoice in that. And I pray now just your blessing as we consider these truths from Matthew chapter 1, built upon the promises that we've looked at for the entirety of this year. Lord, help us to make those connections. Spirit, we ask you to work, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Je Jeconiah, and the brother and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetil, and Shetil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abud, and Abud, the father of Elkim, and Elkim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zedek, and Zedek, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And so the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, a lot of people look at Matthew's opening and say, Matthew, why? <laughs> why? Why would you start a book in such a boring way? Just a bunch of names. I mean, take a cue from Luke. Luke starts with some exciting stories about angels appearing uh, to priests, and they lose their voice, and they can't talk. Uh, and then he slides the genealogy thing in later. But you just open it up with something that's very difficult to read through, very boring, does not grab the attention. But to Matthew, this is dramatic. To Matthew, this is intended to grab the attention of his readers. Because for the Jewish people, genealogy was everything. Genealogy is what connected them to Abraham, their father. Genealogy is what connected them to the promises that were made in the covenant. 
with their fathers before them. Genealogy is what helped them to trace themselves to their tribes, which were very important for them, depending on which tribe you were from. Think about what Paul writes in the book of Philippians when he's, when he's kind of falsely bragging about himself. What does he say? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Being of the tribe of Benjamin meant something. That was the tribe that the first king of Israel came from, Saul, Paul's namesake. It meant something to them. So, what does it mean to us? What does it mean for us? I think of my own experiences in life. Uh, my name means something, and I've shared some of this before, I'm sure, certain of it. But in the little town I grew up in in Oklahoma, the name Matthews meant something. My grandpa was mayor while I was in middle school and high school. This is 1,200 people, by the way. But, but I always imagined that, you know, if I got pulled over by one of the Morris police officers, they didn't ever pull me over. Uh, other police officers pulled me over. Uh, I, could, I could show them my license, and they would say, Matthews. Oh, the, the mayor? Are you connected to Bill Matthews? And they would let me off. That was, that was my imaginations and my dreams. There, there, was, there was one time where I got in an accident, and I... I ran through a stop sign and, and ran into a bunch of trees and just totaled my car. And my dad, I had to make that phone call that some of you had to make where I'm like, Dad, I need some help. And so he angrily came, and uh, righteous anger. And he was helping me pull the car out. We had to hook it up to his truck and chain it. We were going to drag it about a mile to my grandpa's shop. And the police did come by. And uh, immediately the police came to me and they were asking me questions. What was going on? You know, and I was like, I'm going to get a ticket and this is going to be terrible. Well, then my dad walked around the corner and the guy saw him and said, Larry, is this your boy? And I don't think dad wanted to claim me in that moment, but he did and said, yes, this is my son. And he said, well, you better get this out of here before the county shows up. And so because of my family name, my genealogy, I got out of a pretty significant ticket. I did get a massive case of poison ivy uh, from where I'd run into, so there was some sort of plague of punishment that God gave me uh, through that instance. But uh, they loved to trace their particular roots. And, and some of you, some of you have done this. How many of you uh, like to study your ancestry? Anybody? How many of you have done one of those, like, 23andMe, like, DNA tests? Man, not many of you. Wow, this is great. I just imagine those, that's some guy like in his garage and you mail your blood or your, and he just, he has this computer program and just spits out, ah, you're from here, you know, and just fooling everybody in the world. Uh, but there's, there's fun in that. I will probably be one of those old guys in the library with the books, you know, opening them up, just trying to trace through some of that genealogy to find out some of the history, all of the the traitorous people that I'm connected to in my past. But, uh, but for a moment, I want to break down what Matthew does here in these first 16, 17 verses. But 17 really summarizes everything for us. He says this, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14. The deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14. So there's three groups of 14 names. Now, not every actual generation is listed there because that would be a lot longer chapter and a lot longer genealogy. 
So there's names that are skipped. So it would be like they would say, uh, Bill Matthews, which is my grandpa, skip my dad, Larry, and come to me, that I would be the son of Bill Matthews, keeping it in that lineage. But Matthew has a particular intent, and you can see it in this structure. Three groups of 14 names. He's trying to keep this succinct. And the first group is from Abraham to David. The next group is from David until Israel would be taken into the Babylonian captivity. And then the next group is from Babylonian captivity to Joseph, to Jesus, to the promised Messiah that would come. Why the structure? Now here's where I do struggle a little bit because there's some division here amongst scholars. But there's this practice in, in ancient Jewish understanding called gematria. And they put numeric value to certain, certain names and numbers and letters in the alphabet. Uh, many believe, and I'm not sure I do or not, but that the number 14 is significant to the name David. David being the key figure that we're dealing with here. And you can, you can study some of that on your own. You can come to your own conclusions with that. But we do see the significance of that as he is listed here. And he is connected to being the son of David. David being a central figure to this genealogy. Matthew wants us to make that particular connection. Do you know the name David is used more than any other name in the entirety of the scriptures? more than Jesus. I looked it up. Not much more than Jesus, but when you include the Old Testament, the New Testament, the name David is of great significance, and we see that throughout the history of Israel, even to present day. Another whole part of the structure that's given are some of the names, and I hope as we read through that, you were like, oh yeah, we talked about that person. Oh yeah, we kind of worked through that section, even this year of the genealogy. We went back and talked about some of those people. One of the things that I find most appealing about the genealogy is the, the list of women that are, that are named. Uh, beginning with Tamar, you're going all the way back, because these were people that were not even of, of the tribes of Israel, but they're people that God brought into Israel, and he used them in this lineage. I love that because I'm not Jewish either. And I've been brought in. I've been grafted into this amazing thing that God is doing. So you have Tamar listed. You have Rahab. That was one of the first stories we talked about this year, back in March. Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. She was not of the tribe of Israel, but she married in after she helped those spies and helped Israel take the land. Then you have Ruth. What a beautiful story that is. What beautiful promises we find throughout that particular book. We see uh, Bathsheba almost mentioned, Mary mentioned to a degree. But the most significant names in the list, at least for the Jewish people as they would look at this, were Abraham, David, and then getting to the person of Jesus. Forming up those three sections. The whole point of the genealogy and I hope you see this. The whole point of the genealogy is to prove that Jesus, the child that's born to Joseph and Mary, is the promised blessing. That Jesus is the promised Christ or Messiah, the son of David who will eternally reign. David, your kingdom will last forever. How will it last forever? Because there's one who is coming who will not die, who will not stay dead, who will reign forever 
and ever. Is Jesus the blessing God promised to Abraham some 4,000 years ago? Is Jesus the Messiah that will ascend David's throne and reign forever? Well, the point of the genealogy is to prove that very thing. It's to point to, to Joseph and Mary and this child that's born and say, this is who he is. And, and and I know as I study this and think, I, I love this stuff. This is really cool to me. It may not be as cool to you, but I hope at least you make some of those connections today. Uh, because the point is, the Bible is one unified story. One unified story. And, and, and I like what Francis Chan once wrote in one of his books. He, he talks about how you... You, you may get an opportunity at some point to be an extra in a movie. You know, and you're, you're in the background. You're one of those people, and you're like back there, you know, talking at a table or something while the, the stars are there. And, and in his point, he talks about how, you know, you, you watch that movie. You bring all your family together, all your friends together, and you're like, oh, oh did you see me? And you got, you got like a point two seconds of airtime out of this two-hour movie, and you're, you're acting like you're the star of this thing. And that's, that's kind of what we do. With life, we act like this is really about us. What, what this genealogy helps us to see is that we're just a part of an incredible story. It started with what Aaron read to us this morning. We were created to bring glory to God. We were created to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, everything we had. But instead of doing that, Adam and Eve chose to love themselves, to bring glory to themselves. And every person that's come after them, we've chosen the same thing. We've chosen to love us. We've chosen to bring glory to us. And because of that, we've fallen into sin. And the story of the Bible is the story of this loving and gracious and merciful God putting into place a plan to rescue what sin has broken. And Matthew chapter 1 tells us the story of that rescue coming to a head as God himself will put on flesh and become a part of his own creation to redeem us, to restore us, to give us hope. As we move through this Advent season, we've already focused on that word hope. Today we focus on the word love, recognizing that his compassion has no equal that he would do what he has done for us, it will never be repeated in all of history. There is no equal to his love. And because of that, as we'll look next week, there's peace and joy as we'll look on the 22nd. So how do we do this? One, one thing I just want to encourage you with today is rejoice in these truths. These are good, good truths. Rejoice in them. Rejoice in the salvation that we have. Rejoice in the Savior that's come. That should be at the forefront of our minds as we celebrate the Christmas season, the Advent season together. The second thing I want to challenge you with is share these truths with other people. 
Share these very truths with other people. We live in a world of people that need hope. They're walking in darkness. One of the verses we're going to look at in the coming weeks is the one that's right here in front of me. My wife painted this, by the way, and we're going to give that away on the 22nd. I don't know how we're going to do it. Uh, somebody suggested auction or something like that, but I don't know that we're going to do that. Uh, but this verse in particular is one we're going to look at, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. We're called to share that light with the people around us. What better time to do that than during the Advent season? As people are cognizant of that, people recognize that. The songs that are playing even in, in, in the secular stores and in the secular world are reminding people of who Christ is, of what we're celebrating this time of the year. So I want to challenge you this week. Here's just a very specific challenge. Walk somebody through this. Take somebody to 2 Samuel 7 and say, look at this promise that's made to David. And then look at Matthew chapter 1 with you and look at how it's fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. Help people see those actual connections that we're making in Scripture. One final point. Throughout this long list of names, there's, there's something that's hidden, there's something that's working behind the scenes at every turn, represented by every name, and that's the faithfulness of Yahweh. That has been the refrain of nearly every sermon we've looked at this year, that God never abandoned his people, that God never reneged on the promises that he made to his people. And Matthew 1 sums up so well that all of those promises that were made to Adam and Eve, that, that your seed will, will destroy the seed of the serpent, the promises that were made to Abraham, that out of his family would come a blessing that would be a blessing to all the nations of the world, the promise that are made to David that his kingdom would last forever. All of those promises come to a head and culmination in the birth of of Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is proven. And so whatever you're going through right now, whatever your friends and your family, your neighbors, your coworkers are going through right now, we find hope in a list of names of all places, a boring old list of names that God is faithful to keep the promises that he's made. And so whatever those promises are that, that you're kind of clinging to, and maybe, maybe the temptation is to, I don't know if he's going to come through on this one. I don't know if he's really with me. I don't know if he's really hearing my prayers. Hold tighter, because he's faithful to every promise he's ever made. Mm -hmm. 